Welcome to Smart Water Solutions Podcast. I'm Hakim El-Fadil. This is episode number nine. Today's guest is Dr. Peter Ertz. Today we will learn about the world's first fully backwashable flat sheet membrane integrated permeate designed for wastewater treatments. Moreover, we learn in which applications this technology would bring added values versus the conventional membrane bioreactor, including CAPEX and OPEX. Today, around 80% of all wastewater is discharged and treated into rivers, lakes, and oceans. It creates health and environmental hazards and contributes to greenhouse gas emissions, including nitrous oxide and methane. Recovering water, energy, nutrients, and other precious metals embedded in wastewater is an opportunity for cities to transition to the circular economy and contribute to improved water security. So, membrane bioreactor is one of the promising technologies to treat wastewater. Therefore, we have today the expert Dr. Peter S. to talk about his leading product, as well as his 16 years experience in the water treatment world. Welcome, Dr. Peter. Thank you. So I have Thank given you. a little bit of background about you, Peter. So why don't uh, give us a bit more of your persona and what you have accomplished so far in the water treatment world? Okay, thank you very much, Hakim, and also thanks for this uh, invitation. Um, well, I dived into not just the water technology, but basically uh, membrane separations, which are obviously uh, linked very much with water uh, technology. Uh, it started uh, when I was doing my master's and afterwards PhD at uh, Louvre University. So, a PhD together with, with Vito on membrane formation of ultrafiltration polymeric uh, membranes. Um, actually, that, that PhD was quite interesting and it brought me over all the way to, to the US. I did part of uh, that work at the um, Center for Thin Film Separation of the University of Boulder, Colorado, where we used uh, acoustic techniques which were developed over there to characterize other filtration and to follow basically membrane formation and phase, in, phase inversion. Um, after my, my uh, PhD, I did a short uh, postdoc because I was planning to go to industry anyhow. Um, and that was quite um, an experience. I was with a solvent-tolerant nanofiltration membranes or solvent-stable nanofiltration membranes together with uh, Professor Van Kielekom, which is a quite um, um, well-known um, academic in that field. We tested one of the first what was called solvent-stable NF membranes for um, homogeneous catalysis separation out of chlorinated solvents. This was a, a project with um, Johnson & Johnson as an uh, industrial partner. However, at that time, uh, and mid-90s, uh, 90s solvent stability was basically um, not there, <laughs> or not great. I think it started from that point onwards, and many things um, developed from there. Uh, then actually, right after that, I joined uh, Dow, first in Dow Plastics, where I worked on that interface between R&D and manufacturing to introduce um, uh, polymer, polymers into production plants. And also in these polymers, you had phase inversion, phase separation phenomena, which is actually the one which was linked to, to membranes. 
And then about 13 years ago, I joined DAO, DAO Water Process Solutions. I did various things. Um, this was at the time when they acquired Omexcel, Chinese UF producer. So I worked with them, integrating their UF and a submerged UF uh, project and products within the business. Uh, initiated a totally new project on, on submerged uh, ultrafiltration with them. Um, we started at that time under my leadership as well, the water reuse application research. And uh, um, this led, and I was leading that for some time with the integrated portfolio of filter filtration, ion exchange, and some, some other uh, components. Um, this was actually was a, I, was, I mean, when talking to me, it's uh, basically with a whole team, also for the latest water reuse team, was actually a global team with people located in Asia, Latin America, Europe, and I was in the US at that point. Then I moved more into business development roles, um, laid out foundation, but on the technical side, laid out foundation for specialty membranes. Uh, I believe DuPont currently has a specialty membranes uh, business. And uh, some of these products that came out of that are the uh, ultra high pressure uh, non-filtration membranes, uh, the acid stable uh, non-filtration uh, membranes. Um, from the water reuse and the dairy side, the um, XFR. Uh, membranes, XLE membrane types uh, for for spiral wound uh, reverse osmosis. So, yeah, touched a lot of things in that time. And 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 what keeps you actually, I mean, loyal to the water world? I mean, why didn't change to automotive industry or maybe beer or other industry? So why you keep, let's say, motivated to work in water business? Well, um, the water business. And actually, to to in, in in our field of expertise, the membrane membrane use in, in the water business always has uh, intrigued me. Um, when I was uh, studying at um, university as a chemical engineer, our lab was basically divided between catalysis and uh, separation. I think the center was called Center for Surface Chemistry and Catalysis, and ninety five percent of the people did catalysis because that actually worked. Membranes at that point, I'm talking early 90s, um, late 80s was still an early uh, technology. But the, the product as such intrigued me because you actually could design a creative with creativity a product that had a certain selectivity. And you can tune that selectivity. You can make a product that is selective for water, for selective for organics, um, selective for other uh, components through its affinity. And that as a material intrigued me significantly. Um, and that, that's where, I mean, we start to use that for in the water field and in, in the water initially. Later on, I moved to other fields, more like uh, solvent torrent or specialty, uh, specialty applications. And yeah, it's, I think it's the, the unique material design and the creativity that comes with designing the material and designing the process around it, which, which always has, um, kind of uh, intrigued me as a creative person, I guess. Right. And then, I mean, Peter, as I said, I mean, you spent, I would say, 16 years uh, with Dow Chemical. I've been working with you and really I enjoyed working with you. Actually, we love more than work, <laughs> I think, when we're traveling. Um, so you spent 16 years, have been working in several applications. Would you just briefly, I mean, the key applications that you have been focused on within the last let's say five or seven years with Dow Chemicals and what was the key learning from you from the market and from the innovation part, I would say? 
Yeah, it's a good it's a good thing. Um, when I started when I started um, understanding membranes initially at university, still was on preparation, um, and then my PhD was linked around um, uh, the polymeric synthesis of filter filtration uh, membranes. Actually, a type of membrane Zirfon that that was kind of the predecessor of the LifeStraw product, which was commercialized by Aqua Solutions in the mid 2000s. And also the, the same product as basically Zirfon or Zirfon Pearl, which is currently being commercialized by, by Agfa in, uh, in Belgium. Um, and those were basically real uh, water water type um, uh, products. Initially in Dao Water, when I joined Dao Water, also the focus was on ultrafiltration, on, um, on uh, MBR a little bit. But then after some time, we started to dig into um, a nanofiltration. Uh, because nanofiltration is a very unique uh, product where it separates both both on, on on size to some degree, but also on charge to a certain degree. And that combination is very unique. Um, nanofiltration is mostly used for in water fields still, um, where it's basically a lot of charge in order to reject um, uh, the ions. But if you if you look at that that product from a broader perspective, there are many uh, organics with certain molecular weights. There are uh, many smaller molecular weight organics with certain charges that you could separate out um, with with uh, filtration. So I actually was asked uh, at that point when um, I was working on a new platform, especially membranes platform, to go around and identify basically. Um, different uh, application areas, different customer needs um, that that um, could lead us into uh, novel products. So, um, as, a, as a business interface, basically, at this customer uh, business interface, it was really to understand from end users kind of what is the technical separation need that they that they have, and what are they willing to pay for that solution. Because in the economics of selling a product, it needs to create a value, well, on both sides, the people who sell the membrane and the people who use the membrane. So in other words, kind of the value-added separations, we were calling it internally. We, call, we use a certain technique, uh, market blueprinting technique. You could find it on the website, I'm sure, as really to, to create a landscape of what are the specialty membrane separation needs out there. If you look into mining, if you look into um, um, pharmaceutical, if you look into uh, plain uh, up concentration of, of food food products, uh, if you look into oh, uh, chloralkaline, there are many, many areas. And um, the cool thing is that actually it, it, it eventually led to a specialty membranes uh, business um, where we, we um, laid out the foundation uh, for uh, ultra-high pressure uh, membranes, uh, for acid-stable membranes, and hopefully some, some others as well. Yeah. Okay, so... Those, and also, I remember also the daily applications also was one of the key focus for you um, yeah, in, the, in the last time. And then you moved to, I think, startup company, which is uh, Blue Foods Membrane. I mean, what was, I would say, I would say what were the drivers behind this move? I mean, moving from, you know, Dow Chemical is a I mean, big 
company to startup company, innovative company, I would say. So what was the driver behind this move? Well, I think it comes down to, um, I've answered this question so many times, Hakim, to other people, but it comes down <laughs> to... I know, the money, to, no? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it, it comes down to what, what resonates within you as a, as a person. I think there are three, three aspects, really. One is... I mean, the creativity in, in membranes, as I mentioned before, the, the membrane as a product intrigues me. And in this case, also the IPC, the integrated permeate channel membrane, is something that is really unique uh, product uh, that can really bring some good advantages in, in submerged filtration and, and, and in the membrane bioreactors. But also, I mean, this IPC approach is kind of a platform technology where you can or we can deliver other separation aspects on a, on a very similar form factor uh, for other separation needs in the in the future. So that's the I think one of the one of the things creativity and creativity in, in membranes. The other thing is probably I mean um, direct leadership. I mean direct leadership and direct responsibility to start and to build a technology driven uh, company. Uh, we employ today roughly 10, well, not exactly, <laughs> 10 people direct and, and, and five people indirect just by manufacturing of our of our product. And that gives a fulfillment, you know. Um, it's not only technology-driven, making this unique IPC membrane, but also a purpose-driven to lower the, the global water footprint, to work on aspects as water reuse, as drinking water pretreatment, clean up impaired uh, waters and try to do that with by lowering the energy uh, consumption significantly. Um, that is something that the IBC product can do. So that's about leadership, technology, technical leadership, technology-driven leadership, and also, I mean, starting a, a startup. And with starting a startup comes the, comes the third aspect, which is basically something around, I guess, uh, strategy and strategic decision-making. In a, in a startup, you are actually in the driver's seat. I, I compare it frequently if I explain this journey to others is that I left basically a large organization. So I left basically a tanker and I jumped off into a rowing boat with half, which has the money for an engine. So currently we're turning this rowing boat into a speedboat by spending some of that money. And um, yeah, I think this is this is obviously an exciting, an exciting journey. So, from that strategic perspective, I mean, everything you do in an, in a startup is strategic, basically. Otherwise, you're working on the wrong things. Um, everything you do is strategic, also to the success of the company and directly, not not indirectly, but directly. And that is something what entrepreneurial people uh, like very much. Uh, if the phone rings, you don't have to look around who's going to take that call <laughs> no no it's you actually who's going to take that call whether that is the bank whether it's an investor whether it's a customer whether it's a partner whether it's a complaint whether it's somebody who's happy um and that's that's quite fun uh, this is my st startup experience of the last two years and um well the way i look at it right now it i'm not saying it's going to be my last one i mean it's uh uh, the good thing, well, good thing, the thing that I experienced when I left a large organization is that the colleagues around me understood that choice because probably I had seen that and there's kind of maybe mismatch and drive or whatever. 
Um, well, it's at least it, it, it checks off a question mark that you always have if you do a if you do a major change in your career. Yeah. So hopefully the waves are not too high for the boat. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's as unpredictable as the weather. <laughs> Let's keep it at that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you say. I mean, you say that it's it's kind of a new platform that you are going on. The way I understand by that is like uh, it's no new way how to do the membrane chemistry for, I mean, for membrane bioreactor. It's kind of new arena where you can um, you can design different configuration than what you have right now. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. I mean, currently we're making an ultrafiltration uh, submerged product which can be used um, as submerged UF and MBR. Um, but this form factor where you have um, a 3D textile, a woven 3D structure, um, which you can at the end use spiral wound or in a flat configuration or in a disc configuration or just as a panel um, or as a sandwich or to make a stack. So the form factor allows multiple um, design options. And then we are coating uh, a membrane or functional material on or over or in this tree structure. And yeah, now I've given you multiple uh, opportunities <laughs> to make different types of products into a separation separation world. Yeah, but I mean, the, the market of wastewater is packed, I would say, with MBR technologies. So what makes, I mean, this IPC MBR, I would say, more valuable to the wastewater markets? And, and why now? I mean, why now think it, it would be valuable? Well, what I've, what I've learned to do is to look from the customer's perspective. At the end of the day, I mean, I believe the IPC product is something that, that the customer, the customer wants. Holistically, I don't like to use that word, you know, but... If you think about what a customer wants and if he, the customer is not form factor linked or, or product type or product reputation agnostic, if imagine the customer is like that, which he isn't, <laughs> and especially for a startup, it's one of the biggest challenges uh, that you have a new form factor and your product type or your product reputation is not established in the market yet. But if, if imagine just that he is uh, all agnostic to form factor, product type, or product reputation, then in an MBR, a customer actually looks for a good and constant permeate water quality. He looks at a high capacity per footprint, because if, if footprint doesn't matter, then why you put an MBR? If you have time and space and no money, then you have to go to a classical system or even a pond. Now, in the industrialized world, there's a limited amount of time and space available. Um, so high capacity per footprint. And the third aspect is OPEX. What is the OPEX of making that permeate? So he wants clean permeate. He wants a lot of permeate out of a small footprint. And what's the cost of making that permeate? And I think in the IPC products, as actually um, uh, answers all of these three, three questions. I mean, on the first one, I mean, it's a very robust structure, a new, unique product on a stackable uh, module designed from MMF. Um, and it gives a constant permit quality. There's no, we, we have no mumbo jumbo about self-healing. It actually gives me the creeps if I hear 
people talk about self-healing, but it's from a material science perspective, it basically means you're losing polymer over time. You're losing your functional material over time. So we don't want to go there. We have a robust structure that gives you the quite quality 24-7 uh, for the warranty of the product and how you operate it. And it's actually so robust that you can backpulse this product with two bar. There's no polymeric membrane, even not hollow fiber or tubular membrane so that can withstand the back pulse of two bar. So the back pressure is two bar, you mean? You, we, it can withstand two bar. Okay. In a submerged system, you never use two bar as a back pulse. Yeah, okay. you, I mean, it would be ridiculous because <laughs> you would pump more than you permeate back into your membrane. So that becomes a negative efficiency, I guess. Um, so what we do is we, 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 we extract permeate at a certain filtration rate, and we backpulse at two times that filtration rate. So your backpulse pressure can go anywhere between 100 to 500 millibar. And that backpulse is very, very effective. There are some ceramic membranes that can do that, and uh, ceramics that can do that. But for a polymeric membrane, we are very, very unique on that. And actually... It's unseen in the market for a, for a polymeric membrane, and it actually impresses every customer if we tell them that. We test every sheet at two bar to see if, if it maintains. And two bar is a few elephants <laughs> at the inside of that sheet, quite honestly, yeah, if you think yeah, about yeah. I mean, how much kilogram per square centimeter that is. So the that's the first on rope. Yeah, can you emphasize the value of that? I mean, in terms of removing fouling or what? Uh, exactly. I mean, uh, Flat sheet membranes today, they rely on air scour, basically, to create wakes and turbulent effect, turbulence effects to and velocity to actually uh, keep fouls from the surface, and that's it. So how they do that? They use relaxation, so stop filtering for one or two minutes in your cycle, and then it goes back to actually water again, the, the dewatered gunk layer on the top of your membrane. What we do, as similar as a hollow fiber, is backpulse, a backwash. And everybody knows that backpulse and backwash works very nicely. So we actually replace some of the expensive air that's used for air scour, and we replace that by cheap backwash. And the backwash or backpulse, everybody knows, is very effective. We've seen that in all ultrafiltration products or microfiltration products, uh, at least hollow fiber ones. Um, so we use the same thing here, but then in a flat sheet configuration. So you have a very nice hydrodynamic system where the air scour has delivers a certain velocity and a certain uh, shear effect. And then on top of that, we have back pulse that really pushes out the solids from uh, beyond the membranes. That, that's all about permeate quality. Well it, well, it brings me actually to the second point, which is if you do use that backwash and you have very thin membrane sheets, and they are about four millimeter thin, then you actually have a high capacity per footprint. Um, you combine that with a stackable module where you can stack one, two, three on top of each other, even four modules, which then becomes four meter high in, in, in membrane uh, stack, um, which gives you a high velocity on the surface of that sheet with the same aeration still. This, this capacity per footprint, so how much permit you can filter per uh, footprint, outperforms many flat sheets, uh, if not all, and it actually matches uh, hollow fiber systems. So that is quite nice. And the last thing is how much do you have to pay for it? Well, as I mentioned, we were exchanging some of the expensive aeration uh, by cheaper backwash. I mean, 
bringing compressed air three meters or four meters deep in a tank is very expensive. And for that reason, aeration, air scour aeration is half, 40%, 50% of the operational cost, of a daily operational energy cost of an MBR. And if, if you basically do the math on our system versus a standard flat sheet system that historically has been built, um, our operational cost just on aeration aspect is 30 to 50% lower. And again, because we have an additional physical way of removing solids from the surface. And that's the backwash or backpots. So that, that gives us, I mean, high instantaneous flux, which gives you also peak load management. Uh, do, do you know that, especially municipal MBRs, they have 25% of their membrane area just standing idle what? for the case that people flush the toilets all at once <laughs> oh. and you have a, and you have a, well, that's an exaggeration, I guess, because it's normally designed for that volume. But it's mainly for, for peak lows if, if there's a storm weather event. If it rains two days dramatically and you don't have a separated sewer system versus a rain runoff system, which luckily in Europe we have in multiple places, but there are, I mean, 100,000 places where it isn't, then your peak load on your MBR just goes 2x, 3x. And then they have to switch on that additional 30, 25% of membrane area to, to run. And that's very expensive for the for the customer. What we do, we actually change the operational protocol because instead of backpulsing every 10 minutes, you can backpulse it every seven or even five minutes. And on top of that, the membrane actually with this backpulse doesn't get severely fouled. So you can keep running at higher operational fluxes and withstand that for a longer period of time. So on that, there's also a CapEx saving for the, for the end user. Um, Okay, so, that's yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I mean, MBR technology is one of the fastest, uh, if not, let's say, the, the fastest technology in wastewater treatment with uh, a growth rate between 10 and 15%. So what do you think? I mean, why is, is, is this number high for the time being? I would say? Well, I think the, the, the growth rate that you're mentioning is a combination of uh, replacement of existing MBR because they, the membranes can get replaced every... Yeah, five, seven, ten years depends, um, and uh, the growth of the the systems as such. I mean, uh, the MBR website from from Simon Judd has done um, uh, some nice work on that. I mean, the size of MBR systems double every six, seven years. The, the size of the largest groups of systems double every five to seven years. And if you know that currently they're they're building systems which more than a million square meter membranes for MBR uh, and all of them also need to be replaced and everything in the middle between 100 square meter and a million square meter or a few hundred thousand square meter need to be replaced. That's one aspect and then the new the new systems basically is driven by by large large trends. When you have this industrialization trends in Asia uh, for sure and in the Middle East and in uh, Latin America uh, and that that actually is a driver for for putting wastewater treatment plants. Actually, we're active in Indonesia from some in some projects. Uh, urbanization is the same thing. I mean, more and more people start to live or move to cities, large cities, and then there's water reuse needs. And and um, the MBR technology delivers actually various aspects of that. It delivers the right water quality and to to comply with discharge limits. 
it actually, if you, if there's industrialization, what we see happening here in, in Europe, at least, is uh, factories grow, they expand their production, and in the back of the lot, uh, the back of the the, the the land lot, there also is a wastewater treatment plant that cannot cope anymore with uh, with the capacity or has to do something linked to to regulation. Well, then they look at what can deliver us this right quality uh, at the right price, obviously, uh, and this capacity footprint that I have. They're not going to acquire more land for a wastewater treatment plant. They might acquire more land for an industrial site and in the in the back put a wastewater treatment plant, but they would like to do it in their current installation. And then MBR is a very nice way of of, um, uh, of uh, helping out. Um, and we that's actually the, the vast majority of our projects uh, right now. For urbanization, decentralized systems where people develop a lot of land and uh, they need to take care of the utilities on and off the site. MBR can easily be decentralized, automated, remotely controlled. And I think those are the aspects that that um, um, that bring into this growth rate. Now, if you talk to to people that are used to build classical systems and love the, only the bacteria, they claim that it's obviously it's expensive uh, and that there are cheaper ways of doing it and those kind of things. Yes, but if you don't have the space, if you don't have the time, and you have some money, then MBR is is one of the obvious choices. But if you have time and space, then you can basically just use a pond. Okay, I mean, you mentioned a very good point. One of very good point: decentralized units. I will come back to this point later because I had just had, uh, I mean, um, a couple of episodes before with Professor Hoinkes. He mentioned about uh, decentralized units. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. MBR in Africa, and it really emphasized that um, if there is any MBR technology that can reduce the operation cost, it would be very valuable for those decentralized units because the energy mm-hmm. is that's the key point here. I mean, before I will get to this point, just keep it here and I will ask you yep. um, I mean, talking about your IPC MBR, so with, what are the primary applications? that you already tested this MBR and you already ensure that there is a value for the end users, I'll say. Yeah, I think those are, are um, um, three ones or four probably. Um, MBR, the classical membrane bioreactor for wastewater treatment, uh, municipal and industrial. We have active um, uh, commercial projects running that. Um, also, uh, what we're running is is um, with runoff waters, whether that's a large farm or a biogas plant, where they have highly loaded um, with COD, highly loaded uh, waters that they can not just discharge in the in the surface waters. Um, we have active uh, uh, plants on that, and then we have been done tests on algae up concentration. Algae farming is microalgae. I'm talking is is growing small as size as an industry but it's growing and um, at the end of the that process they need to separate the microalgae from the water to extract actually the valuable products or just the algae as such and uh, filtration might sound interesting but it clogs up very easily on any type of system that's again why the backwash is so intriguing intriguing and we've done some study and we're in the running of some other projects um, I mean, research projects in this case, where we would pr- like again to prove out that versus um, rotary systems 
or our orchestration systems as MBR is actually uh, quite effective. Uh, of this IPC technology, I should say, is quite effective. And then, well, the other aspects that we're still working towards is um, all kind of impaired waters that are loaded with higher molecular organics or suspended solids uh, are actually working. Um, you can think about river waters. You can think about um, mining ponds, acid mine drainage ponds. You can think about produced water ponds. These last two probably have to do with some type of regulation in order to uh, clean those things up. But everywhere you can put in a submerged uh, module which has higher molecular organics, some type of suspended solids. Doesn't need to be much. I mean, standard pressurized filter filtration system can only withstand uh, a certain NTU level and a low. You're uh, not going to, I mean, half a gram per liter of suspended solids on a, on a pressurized system. So everything from a few percent. Sorry, a half a percent, of half a gram per liter, I should say, of um, suspended solids in the liquids, all the way up to 20 grams per liter, uh, is is in our ballpark. Yeah. Okay, so it's good. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the produced water, and to me, whenever I heard produced water, I'm thinking about offshore and offshore. The, the only limitation they have is space. It's not about energy consumption, but they don't have space. I mean, every square meter costs a lot of money for them. So do you think, I mean, this type of IPC membrane would be valuable for this um, applications? I mean, produce water in offshore, I'm talking? I'm not sure. I was thinking onshore when I talked about this as a pond, as a, as a real um, waste pond for these um, conventional uh, drillings. Um, offshore, I mean, if they're happy right now with their... With their um, uh, UF pressurized system. Um, I guess it comes down to what I have built, the, all, the overall installation size and how much capacity can get out of the installation size. We obviously need a submerged tank and um, that's a different concept, I believe, than they have right now where they just have a, a feed, a pipe and a pump and you pump it into vessels. Um, this is a, con a conservative industry, so I guess they want to keep working with what they're working right now. But hey, um, I'm open to calculate if there is a potential benefit and uh, if there's anybody um, out there with that information. Uh, let's look into that. So you're talking on, about calculation. Offshore. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. On yeah. offshore. On onshore, I think there is a value proposition because, again, there are some of these ceramic flat panel membranes that position this, um, themselves exactly in that space. Uh, we, we actually have the same form factor, some of the same advantages from backwashability. Um, we are cheaper than ceramics, but you cannot hit us with steam. I should say that to start as well. <laughs> okay. And talking about the calculation, I mean, um, uh, briefly, can you say, do you have an example, just figure for, for us to understand what is the CAPEX, what is the OPEX saving of using IPC MDR versus just what exists? I mean, the convention or the normal MBR membrane which exists really in the market? Yeah. I mean, uh, the CAPEX um, benefit really comes from, from the um, capacity footprint. I mean, how large is or how much smaller does your installation get if you uh, imply our membranes versus others? And then you also have to think about the stackability. I mean, we can stack our modules three, even four high, 
and that then becomes a huge capacity per footprint. You're talking about 10 cubic meters that you can pump out of a of half a square meter of footprint. If you put these modules basically uh, four high, and you extract two to two and a half cubic meter per hour per module, you can out of a footprint of half a square meter footprint, you can pump out basically 10 square 10 cubic meter of permeate. So that's huge. And everything which is linked to, to um, uh, if you have space limitations or if your basin is built, we're just doing a project in Indonesia where, I mean, they calculate for classical flat sheets and they had to expand their land with, with another one third on the waste or treatment side because otherwise they cannot cope with the capacity. So that's the, the CAPEX advantage. On OPEX advantage, I mean, as I mentioned, uh, again, this becomes more and more intriguing if you if you make higher and higher towers. But for a classical system that has two this two towers high has a tank tank depth of about three and a bit meter, three and point two meter or something like that, we actually can we are uh, operating systems today at uh, significant high net fluxes between twenty five and thirty five. Consistently, I mean, our largest running system is, is uh, multiple years running at uh, 35 net uh, liters per square meter per hour net flux. And then you come down to a capacity per footprint of about um, uh, six, seven, seven cubes uh, per square meter footprint, which is actually double than what a classical flat panel membrane would do. And then if you take the aeration into account, the array, which is directly linked to the OPEX, and then in, in, in MBR, people look at how much specific air do you need, how much specific aeration demand there is, which is expressed in normal cubic meters air, per permeate that you make, when people calculate the membrane area, but at the end of the day, people are making permeates. So they're interested in what is my cost, my OPEX cost per cubic meter permeate. And then we're actually half of a, of a standard flat panel membrane. We're, we're talking about nine, ten uh, normal cubic meter air per cubic meter permeate produced, while a classical flat panel membrane, when it runs at a flux net flux of of twenty, which is good, I guess, um, their specific aeration demand is in the areas of of twenty. So you have twenty normal cubic meter air needed per cubic meter water produced, we only need, need nine or 10. Now, if you then, this is a double stack. If you now go to a triple stack, yeah, it goes even even more down. So it goes down with one third and we probably add six or seven of a normal cubic meters air per air per water produced. And this aeration is very important because it actually is half of the uh, operational cost of an MBR. So if your, um, your operational overall OPEX will go down with a factor of 20, 25% which is huge for these type of installations, obviously. Right. I mean, I think we, I think maybe you agree with me. I mean, to catch those values that you mentioned right now with your technology, it requires knowledge from end users and from OEMs because it's not plug and play technology. And because I mean, my experience, when we go to the customer and we mention this is a new whatever osmosis or non-filtration, and it has so much value compared to the old membrane. If the customers, they don't have good knowledge how to design, monitor, operate the membrane, they may not catch this value. You know, it's not like smartphone, you said, okay, the battery is 10%, it's fine, it's 10%. I mean, it's, it's not like that. So what, what I experience is most of the time, 
Um, there are mistakes, I mean, uh, done by end users or maybe not enough knowledge by end users, by OEMs, and also sometimes by component suppliers, I would say. Also component suppliers, but also we do mistakes. So if you go through, I'm not sure in, in your technology, do you require any OEMs between you and end users? Is it required an OEM to build a system for the end users? Oh, sure. Yeah, exactly. We are purely component supplier. Okay, so yes. we do need an OEM. But I, I, I mean, I agree with, I mean, allow me to, to differ on your, on your statement because I think the MBR with 20,000 installations on the planet has become real mainstream. I mean, your argument would take hold 10 years ago, I believe. But right now, I mean, the OEMs that position themselves as an MBR builder, who actually are, I don't know if visited many, who actually listen to this story, are all intrigued by the story. And obviously, we're all engineers. We like the numbers and we like to see and generate the numbers ourselves. So that's the only hindrance there. But from a, from a technology readiness perspective, MBR, it becomes mainstream, even so that that it could be sold through distribution. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, I think you have a point saying it's a unique product. However, people know backwash. People know the advantage of backwash. People appreciate capacity footprint, and they all know OPEX because that's depending on the market that you're in for MBR. If it's industrial or municipal, it's more or less important. But um, I think all these these advantages resonate very well with the OEMs that we talk with, uh, also with the end users, but they are a bit further away from the product selection in, in, in some cases. Um, so yeah, we have um, people listen to us. Even if you go to, to shows, I mean, I was at the, the uh, IFET show and then you see competitors promoting backwash and then you say, so what's the backwash pressure? Well, 100 meter bars. So what? What do you do with that? Well, we put it on there because the customer like it. Yeah, send them to us. I mean, <laughs> it's, I mean, maybe I'm, is this a kind of uh, way of introducing some future which the most MBR in the past they don't have, they they, they didn't incorporate this future, and you are you are kind of pioneer of introducing this future to the market or what? Oh, that's too much of an RO, I think. Um, it sounds like that. We... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, in reality, you have systems that are built 10 years ago that are running out of capacity or need higher capacity and would love to have lower energy consumption. And they're thinking about building an extra tank, building, uh, pouring extra concrete. You don't need to pour extra concrete. Maybe just exchanging your models, your your flat panels by our by our uh, uh, membrane IPC modules, replace the pump by backwash pump, and yeah, there are more things linked to that, like the PLC and the programming and, and those kind of things. But at the end of the day, if you don't need to pour extra concrete, um, it's a very compelling case, quite honestly. Right, so this brings me to the question, I mean, Peter, um, I know every, let's say, every product from every technology in some applications makes economical sense to use that product. But in some other applications, it doesn't make economical sense or maybe it doesn't make any difference to use it. So so in, in this IPC, so which applications do you think, let's say, makes economical sense and other applications you say that it doesn't add to much economical sense or maybe you say that 
we you still didn't know and it's way it's 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 another it's another let's say path to test that technology and make sure if there is a value or if there is no values there yeah uh, so obviously for mbr um high mbr for wastewater for touch wastewater for algae it uh, makes uh, sense uh, versus compared with other flat panel even hollow fiber products on the market we are looking into uh, water reuse and submerged modules into water reuse. You know, membrane modules don't have um, um, a rating on pathogen removal today. And obviously, the whole case about um, self-healing doesn't help. So we're making a case that with our product, you can actually uh, remove consistently year over year, I mean, uh, four to five log removal of uh, of bacteria which um we're starting to prove out and i believe there is a value but um it's not it's not materialized yet in, in numbers to us the same for microplastics removal there's a lot of talk about drinking water i'm now in the drinking water space obviously for drinking water um microplastic removal uh, microplastics don't are not retained by sand filters are not retained by uh, um other type of of um Filtration devices. So UF membrane is really, as I understand it, uh, a good a good option there. But again, we still have to prove the value uh, out there, um, and that is linked to efficiency of the product and need to remove and, and uh, cost that people want to pay for that. But from a technology perspective, um, it should work. What does work? What we have proven and we have running installations is having it as a direct pretreatment before uh, RO. We have um, uh, we have commercial installation where there's an RO system right behind it, so um, that we read, uh, recuperates 75% of their process water with that system, and we're other with other studies and systems in the works that will deliver exactly that, and that's a quite compelling base, case for water we use, obviously. Right, and now I mean I would like to get back to decentralized unit. I mean, as I mentioned previously, um, I had a very good discussion with Professor Yahonkis, and he mentioned that he was working in um, decentralized wastewater units to treat, uh, let's say, I think the, uh, the water to, to give it to the, to the fish, uh, aquaculture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they do have a problem of electricity because they need to charge. I mean, MBR, you cannot stop MBR, I mean, to 10, 10 hours. I mean, you cannot stop it in the night. So you need energy 24 hours, 7 and the grid, sometimes they don't have access to the grid and also the battery, they need a big battery. So for, do you see any additional value for MBR IPC configured, I would say, like if, if, if I'm, you allow me to say it like that, and any type of MBR configuration which could be built with this IPC technology, would it be valued? Is there any value in terms of energy consumption? Well, in comparison with with classical system in the in the industrial world, we have a compelling case. Uh, your question, if I understand it right, is if you go into a rural case where which has limited access to to electricity, um, or you can is hooking up a solar panel enough in order to keep this this thing operating. Um, it comes down to an engineering question, quite honestly. Um, how much energy is needed and how much can you produce? Um, 
I'm not. I'm not sure. Obviously, if if I'm not sure how how far that um, calculation, that energy calculation in a rural setting, decentralized, how far it's different from an industrial case. I'm not. I'm not knowledgeable about the difference there. So if you tell me I need to do the same operation at one tenth of the energy, I can tell you no way. But how much is the difference? How much energy are we lacking and how much can we produce in alternative forms? So unfortunately, I don't have a number for you. I, mm-hmm. I yeah. No, that's fine. And this brings me, I mean, to this IPC technology. What is the things, I mean, that you said it's, okay, we're still improving. I mean, is there any future or any, uh, let's say, room of development improvement to this IPC technology that you think we, you are fixing that or you are developing that in the future? Oh, um, I think there. are things. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, uh, there's some very obvious things. Meaning, um, we actually are now outsourcing our module making, and at some point, we want to do that ourselves. That's one aspect. Um, the production of the membrane is basically under control. Uh, we just now need to make more of it. So that's basically economical drivers. Um, and then the third aspect is obviously yeah, this IBC platform integrated permeate channel. So a 3D woven structure um, is something that can be used as a form factor for for, for uh, multiple um, uh, multiple other potential separation techniques. And actually, I'm quite I'm quite enthusiastic to say woven structure because maybe you don't know, or maybe some of the listeners don't know that actually Flanders as a region. Um, has been the starting region of weaving from the Middle Ages onwards. So from basically 1100 till 1400, 15th century, this was the hub of weaving. Not even well, France, no. This Flanders was the hub of weaving materials, and then it moved away um, recently. Uh, well, it stayed here actually until until before the First World War, then moved to Africa, then moved to Asia, and now we do technical weaving. We're still weaving a lot in the west side of, of, of Belgium, so the Flanders region, uh, but it's all technical weaving, all of that. And this is actually one of the, the exponents of that, one of the unique that our, our base material is a very unique 3D woven structure that is uh, the exponent of 10 centuries of weaving experience. Let's put it that way. It's an exaggeration, I know, but it sounds nice. It's nice. You can exaggerate. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, that's, that's, that's very good. I mean, uh, discussion, I would say thanks a lot for sharing with us all those very good contents. And my last two questions for every guest. Um, what, which, I mean, what is the disruptive technology that you think, any emerging technology that you believe it will disrupt the MBR or the wastewater markets? That's my question. Second question, are you working or have you been working in any humanitarian project? Um, the last one is easier to answer. <laughs> the humanitarian is easier. Say so, well, I mean, on a large scale, we can think about water reuse and bringing affordable drinking water uh, all around the world is a quite noble aspect, which which can be done with a lot of hard work. Um, but obviously, we do it for economic reasons, and uh, not solely for humanitarian reasons. But the other one is a small scale aspect on the humanitarian. I mean, building a small company, being a bit of an entrepreneur and giving a, a daily job to five, six, ten people mm. is quite fulfilling as well. 
uh, but that's on a on a smaller humanitarian. So you're making sure that the people will not be fired. <laughs> We're making sure that they have a have a uh, fulfillment in their job and they come home safe. And then if we do all of that right, the economics will determine in multiple cases <laughs> uh, how sustainable that is. Uh, on your on your other question, which was our disruptive technologies. Oh, uh, well, obviously, a wastewater treatment. The the disruption is how can a wastewater treatment plant run and produce energy instead of consuming energy and produce valuable valuable products instead of uh, hauling all the uh, sludge to the, to the waste. Um, so I think that is where disruption slowly will will happen. Uh, we are more, more focused, obviously, on the water side and the cleaning water side and water reuse side. And there, I think, the aspects that we talked about, can we make it, how can we make it much more cheap uh, to operate that? How can we make it much more simple for people to extract very valuable permeate? Because if we think about, talk about valuable products, everybody is focused on, oh, this ugly sludge, how can we pure some carbon out of it? But the reality is the real valuable product is actually the water. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we need in the first place <laughs> because two days without water and we're done. So I think they have to rescope that aspect to the valuable water product that we make in this is actually very clean permeate. And it's just that the price of water is not, has not an economic price. Otherwise some people wouldn't be able to afford it. Um, so overall to combine these two things and on your question, the humanitarian aspect and basically also the, um, the innovation needed there. Um, if we can bring this cheap and high-quality permeate all across the globe and reuse more water and make that a sensible um, technology moving forward, um, I think we're doing well then. Yeah, that's that's well said. I mean, I, and I do agree with you. I think the I mean the water we're taking for granted right now, and especially I would say uh, here in, in I mean Western in, in Europe, for example, the, the price is not so high for the water. Well, in other regions, the price is increasing for the water, um, step by step. So, I mean, I, I agree with you with what you said. And this brings me to, to um, the conclusion, which is, I know that the audience, they may have some other questions. For example, I mean, the, the size of the unit, what is the capacity, the smallest one, the biggest one, and so many technical details. So, if they would like to get in touch with you, how they can approach you, I mean, um, LinkedIn, email, or is there, is there any conference that this year will be available that they can get in touch with you? Oh, yeah, we'll be at uh, Aquatech in Amsterdam, um, for sure. Um, actually, we'll be on two two stands at Aquatech. One is the Blue Tech Research Innovation uh, Pavilion, uh, and then with one of our distributors. So we'll have two places where you can meet us with our product. Um, well, feel free to look at our, our um, website. It will be actually revamped uh, going forward with more technical information. Uh, LinkedIn is fantastic means. I mean, we'll be posting uh, updates frequently there on our Bluefoot Membranes LinkedIn page or IPC Membranes uh, LinkedIn page. And um, I think that's that's the easiest way. Uh, you can always so send me an email at paerts at bluefootmembranes.com. But I think the LinkedIn is maybe the easiest channel. Or talk to us at Aquatech. Thank you very much, Peter. And thanks for the audience. And I will also, I mean, in the episode, you can go down in the 
in the snipe was only in snapshot down i will write the, the name of peter s and you can click you can get directly to his linkedin profile thanks a lot right. peter and have a good day thank you thank you Hakim. have a great day as well bye thank you bye, -bye.